Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. This is Catherine Miller. I'm the host of this program. I'm a collaborative family lawyer and mediator and founder of the Miller Law Group, and I'm on a mission to change how people divorce in New York. I'm here today with Alana Katz. Alana is a senior faculty member at the Ackerman Institute for the Family, a trainer in emotionally focused therapy, and a mediator and collaborative divorce coach herself. Welcome, Alana. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I was thinking that we would talk today about the emotional difficulties of divorce and about depression and divorce and the interplay between people who who suffer from depression as a chronic problem and people who experience situational depression because Mm -hmm. of the transition in their life and other emotional issues that come up for people, which obviously divorce is a very emotional time. Absolutely. It's probably one of the most triggering events emotionally. And I have a tremendous respect for people going through the process because it is so emotionally taxing. And at the same time, it's one of the times in your life where you really need to think carefully, logically, methodically, and make really important decisions that are going to govern your life for a very long time. Yeah. And, you know, with my experience of it, when people are divorcing is it's very scary and anxiety provoking and rage provoking, you know, and and, and that it's very hard for people to find their best selves and make really good proactive decisions. Right. uh, And going through those, those kinds of feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it catches people off guard because they may even be the one who initiated the divorce, or there may certainly be a feeling that the marriage hadn't held very much closeness or intimacy or support for quite some time. And so it can catch people off guard. Like, why is this getting to me so profoundly? Why do I not feel like myself? Why am I in a rage all the time? You're right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Alana, since you have so much experience working with families in various configurations, you right. know, both as a therapist and also as a mediator and a, and a collaborative divorce coach, if you have some, you know, if there are a few guiding principles or some things that people can think about or do, obviously getting some professional help is always a good sure. idea. Sure. Well, I think first is just making sense of it, because I think people can always do better if they understand why they're feeling so off balance. And certainly once I came to understand attachment theory, everything that I see in my office around divorce makes complete sense. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So attachment theory tells us that if we're mammals, and so far every client I've met is one, (laughs) you know, We are wired for connection. We are basically not meant to go through this world facing the trials and tribulations of life on our own. And even someone to fight with is someone who's there. So if all of a sudden the fabric of your life is changed dramatically and the person who you thought you were going to kind of march through life with is not going to be there anymore, that throws a person into a kind of attachment panic. That's not necessarily what they come in and say to you, but that's what it feels like inside. All of a sudden, they are thrown for an incredible loop and our bodies are wired to set. This is a danger cue. 
that we process as a danger cue. And there are just a few kind of options in terms of what to do when you're feeling that way. One of them is to come out swinging. Another is to kind of curl in. And some people do interesting mixes of both. So that's really interesting. I mean, I think sometimes we talk about, when we think about children, about this idea of negative attention. Mm -hmm. And and I think what you're saying is that something like that, that any connection, even if it's unpleasant, a difficult connection is better than nothing. I had a colleague who unfortunately passed away much too young, Marcia Stern, who used to say that in a close relationship, it's better to be wanted for murder than not to be wanted at all. Yeah. And I think there's truth there. And interestingly, with this idea that I raised earlier about the depression, that, that sort of sounds like curling in mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. sounds like getting depressed. Yes, yes. So certainly one one possibility is that our bodies just get overtaxed and people feel ripped away from their normal routine, their normal structure, predictability, and they get depressed. Some people get sad and some people will literally be depressed, meaning This can be anything from just feeling blue and down to I can't get out of bed, I can't get to work, I can't take care of my kids. You know, there's quite a range there. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what people who aren't that person who's getting divorced, Mm -hmm. who maybe friends or family of this person could do to help that person maybe find some kind of support for the situation. Yeah. And I think that's a great question because... The people who are witnessing this sometimes get overwhelmed themselves, and they too can sometimes back off because it's just too overwhelming. Or they can come in with all kinds of directives and advice, which usually probably work only about 10% of the time. So I think the first step is to really try to see, is this somebody who, is, is there an emergency in progress? Is somebody really not safe? Do they really need medical attention? Are they, if they're really not able to get out of bed, and I'm not just talking about sleeping till two in the afternoon one Saturday, but in general, they're probably not going to get through that without some medical attention. We know a lot more about pharmacology than we used to. There's really relief available for most people. And and you're certainly not saying that everybody who's getting divorced should be on medication. No, but I'm saying if somebody cannot get out of bed, cannot get to work, their kids are, you know, not attended to, then I think that does need attention. And sometimes medication is a part of that. And I think you're also mentioning something that I think is a really interesting piece of the phenomenon that happens when people get divorced, and that is that people offer advice, bidden and unbidden. Unbelievably so. I think matched only with infertility, actually. (laughs) I've kind of (laughs) tracked this. and I said, where do people feel free to ask all kinds of personal questions and jump in? Yeah, with their two cents. You know, oh, don't forget to, you know, ask for this or don't let this happen or whatever it is. And so I think what you're saying is that's not useful. Exactly. Right. And that if you want to show support and love and caring about the person that you like and a relationship with or may even love a family member even, that the way to do that isn't by an onslaught of advice. Right. It's by some other kind of support. And so can we talk a little bit about what that might be? So some of that is, I mean, social isolation is bad. So finding time to hang out with that person. Can we go to dinner? Do you want to take a walk on Saturday? Just regular social time of engagement. So many people are without Their normal fabric has been disrupted, and especially if they were part of a couple and did a lot of their socializing together, some of that fabric fades out. People don't know what to say or do. So so just offering to do some really, you know, simple things together can be a great antidote to depression. That's one. That's great. 
This is Catherine Miller. I'm talking on Dialogue on Divorce with Alana Katz, WVOX 1460 AM, and as available on my website as a podcast, and that's westchesterfamilylaw.com. We're talking about emotional aspects of divorce, and particularly right now about isolation Mm -hmm. and depression. And you know, it's definitely true that I think that in communities around that we're all a part of, right, the fabric of our lives socially, that people who are are friends with a divorcing couple feel the need to align with one or the other. And oftentimes they align with the person who is being left Mm -hmm. because they feel sorry for the person who's being left and they feel like it would be wrong to then align with a person who's leaving. Right. And that often leads, because you were saying earlier that one thing that happens is that, that sometimes it's surprising that the person who's leaving the marriage can experience depression or sort of very disorienting emotions. And I think part of that might be because of this isolation. All of a sudden, they have no friends. Right. Or their friends are just in paralysis. Yeah. And sometimes the ones that aren't, we kind of wish they were because they're jumping in with all kinds of ideas and directives about what to do, which are not helpful. So I think one of the things is that people can do for self-care is when people do show up, sort of get a sense of, does this feel good to me, the way this person's talking to me? Some people will ask a lot of very personal questions, and it really isn't in service of supporting the person who's going through the experience. It's their own anxiety. It's their own curiosity. And so just really taking a gauge and feeling free to say, you know what, maybe we can have that conversation another time or set appropriate boundaries, setting some boundaries for your own self-care. Absolutely. Yeah. I I had a client once who said to me, you know, I just so tired of people saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear, you know, like what happened. Yeah. (laughs) And they really want you to tell them all the details about what happened. Right. Yeah. And it's not always helpful to be able to do that. So one thing that I always say to my clients is you need a divorce story that you can agree on mm-hmm. so that, it, it, you know, it's true, mm-hmm. but it's limited mm-hmm. and it doesn't encourage further conversation. Right. Right. Absolutely. What are you in your experience, Alana Katz, are some of the other common emotional experiences that people could look out for and get some preparation for dealing with? I think people can find themselves enraged or easily provoked and not necessarily see the triggers coming. That's interesting. So being at a social event and seeing a family that's together, all of a sudden, you know, maybe even a family you wouldn't have noticed before, all of a sudden, it's just so triggering. Because when am I going to have that again? Or look what I've lost. Or somebody just commenting casually. I remember one client telling me this story. It was, she was just starting her divorce process. And it was right before the, the holidays in the fall. And somebody said, well, I'm going to have 26 people over for Thanksgiving. And it was just highly insensitive, but it sent her into an incredible tailspin because she didn't have plans yet for the holiday. It was probably about you know a couple of weeks away. And all of a sudden, she didn't know what if she was doing anything at all. And just having somebody just kind of talk about, you know, having to get ready for her 26 guests. So what do you do as a therapist to help mm-hmm. people figure that stuff out for themselves? So the first step is lots of normalizing and validating and making sense. We always say in my field, the emotions always make sense. We just don't always know why at the time, you know. So if we take that as a starting premise 
then it isn't like, what's wrong with me that I feel this way? It's like, what what's my body telling me right now? What's going on for me? Why did I have such a strong reaction there? And to also try to make space for some self-compassion, because we don't always have someone around us in that moment to give us the compassion we need. But I think to increasingly offer a little bit of you know self-compassion to say, okay, I screwed up there maybe a little bit. Maybe I got edgy. Maybe I didn't handle that so well, but you know what? I am going through one of the most stressful times in life. There must be a good reason why I had that reaction. So I think that can take some of the bitterness out of it. You know, I think there's, because sometimes you have these bad experiences and then there's all the judgment. We can be very judgy of ourselves, right? And very critical. Yeah, there's a book, I think by a woman named Kristen Neff called Self-Compassion. And the book is I have to say that I laughed out loud many times reading it. She doesn't mean it to be funny, but she has you say things like, I am worthy. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and even though that can feel silly at mm-hmm. times to do, I think it can also be really self-affirming and in a vacuum without somebody else saying you are worthy. Right. right. To say it to yourself is really important. I'm not sure the brain can differentiate the speaker from the from the impact of a statement like that. So if one can have those affirmations, I think it's great. We all deserve that. Okay. So one thing is to have compassion for yourself. Right. And one thing that you help people with is help them create a space that they can slide themselves a break to acknowledge that the feelings that they're having are are okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay Mm -hmm. to have those feelings. The other thing is sometimes people can draw some support and comfort from other transitions they've gone through. Most people have weathered many what I would call and what what we in the mental health field would think of as crises. I mean, the birth of a of a child is a crisis. The birth of a sibling is a crisis. Not, not every crisis is a bad crisis. But people have usually gone through transitions before. And sometimes having a chance to reflect on that and think about how did I get through that? What did help me? What are some of my resources? And you help them articulate. Yes, yes, to identify and articulate. The other thing is moderate physical exercise is been shown to be about as effective as a mild antidepressant. Yeah, it's amazing to me actually about that, that how I can be on my way to the gym and I'll be having this, oh my God, this is a life crisis, you know, and on the way back, it's like, hmm, this is an interesting problem. So it's the same thing. It is amazing how regulating that can be. Absolutely. This is Catherine Miller. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm talking today with Alana Katz. This is WVOX 1460 on your AM dial and also available as a podcast on www.westchesterfamilylaw and on iTunes. And we are talking today about the emotional repercussions of divorce and what people can do to help regulate themselves and help support the people around them who might be experiencing the transition of divorce or some other real challenge in their lives. And Alon, I really want to give you a chance to talk about your work as a divorce coach and as a mediator and as a therapist at the Ackerman Institute and how people could contact you about what you do and what you think are some of the additional services that really could be useful for people experiencing divorce. Yes. Well, I know it can sound almost hokey, but people really can seize this as a time to really develop some greater insight and awareness about themselves and what they need. It is a chance to reboot and to think about what really matters at this point in life. Sometimes we set off on one path in the road, 
uh, you know, 20s or 30s or 40s even and have a very different vantage point. So finding some time to reflect about that, think about what is important. Sometimes people are very quick. It's almost like a leak in the dam. How do I plug it as quickly as possible so that the wall looks just like it did before almost? And to think differently, to say, okay, this is a chance to think about what matters to me now and how I would like to go forward. I don't think that sounds hokey at all. I think that that it's a real opportunity. It may not be what you planned. It certainly wasn't what I planned. But I realized 10 years into my first marriage that I wasn't living the life I wanted to leave, Mm -hmm. that I had gone along doing what I was supposed to do, what I thought I was supposed to do, what I thought what my family of origin wanted me to do. And somehow or other, here I was. And if I didn't do something soon, yes. I was going to live someone else's life my whole life. Exactly. And it really was an opportunity for soul searching about where I wanted to do, what I wanted, what was important to me. And even though it was heartbreaking and challenging and sad and disruptive and scary, it had to happen for me to live a happy life. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's one very important piece. The other is... I think that one of the most helpful things about coaching at a time like this is, you know, one can either try to put yourself in the hands of one or more professionals who will take this over for you. That's one possibility. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone else can really do it completely for you. So coaching can really help people find their own resources, find ways to speak differently themselves. And not just go to more meetings, but as I often say, be able to be present at meetings in ways that are going to be successful. And more successful than they have been traditionally in the conflict dynamic between the spouses or in the family. Yes. This isn't a Roman amphitheater where we just say, kill him. You know, I mean, this is an opportunity to sort of think about, do I want to be run by this conflict or do I want to think about how... I want to conduct myself, what I need out of this divorce plan and how I can speak in my own voice, organize what's important and hear the other person. And that really can be very satisfying to feel that you are not at the mercy of what's happening, but that you can, with support and coaching and guidance, be part of steering that ship. More proactive rather than reactive to what's happening in the room. Yeah, and it's much less frustrating if you can speak in a way that is heard better Mm -hmm. and you can listen in a way that's less upsetting and derailing. That's huge. Yes. I recall one woman in particular. I was just so moved. I mean, she turned to her husband in, in one of the team meetings in the collaborative divorce process and she said, six years ago, I put my life in your hands and I know now I have to take it back. Uh, that was just, I mean, no one else could have said that for her. Yeah. And it was quite stunning and quite meaningful to everyone. Help us understand, Alana, what's different about your role as a mediator when you work as a mediator and your role as a collaborative coach? Is there a big distinction between the two? I think there is. I mean, when I'm mediating, I am guiding all the conversations that people are having in which they make the decisions that are ultimately going to shape their divorce agreement. So they may consult, and I always encourage them to consult with outside professionals, but they're in my office with me, and I'm really helping them speak directly and reach a series of decisions together. When I'm serving as a divorce coach, I have a a more limited but a very, I think, helpful role in terms of really helping people tune into their own emotional regulation, their own goals, 
how they want to be present at the meetings and thinking also more about the relational pieces, especially as parents, how they want, how do they want to see that part of their lives work? So would you say that as a mediator, you're doing that as well as managing the substance of the conversation? I would say that for myself, it's less of that happens in the mediation work. It is, and it maybe there are some who are managed to do that fully in mediation as well, but it seems that mediation tends to have less of those components. They're present, but not as fully developed as when I'm there as a professional where that is my whole job. Oh, that's interesting. So I have a surprise question for you. Okay. I like surprises most of the time. And you may not be able to answer it, but if you were, if your sister were getting divorced, I don't think you have a sister, but if you, you had a sister and she was getting divorced, is there one piece of advice that you would give her if she asked you? If she asked. If she asked. If she you, asked for advice. If she asked for advice, you'd say, Alana, what's the one thing you can tell me that would be useful for me in this situation? I think it would be to try and take perspective to realize that it's going to be it's going to be a process. It's a it's a marathon more than a sprint. There won't be an immediate fix, but to really invite her to reflect about the different process choices and think about how she would want to organize that for herself. So to focus on the how before the what. Yes. Yes. Of, of what's going on. That's interesting. I think I might say something similar. Mm. So, Alana Katz, we're getting near the end of our time together. And I want to come back to our original topic of conversation for today, which was to really sort of talk about sort of the emotional upheaval mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that happens. And we talked a little bit about depression. We talked a little bit about isolation. Is there you know, something else? What about rage? Let's talk a little yeah. bit about anger and rage, because certainly it seems almost synonymous in the sort of public perception of divorce. Right, right. They don't make movies about people who calmly and carefully and respectfully exactly. speak to each other with care and, and, and plan together how they're going to navigate this life transition. Exactly. And rage is and anger are very common emotions yes. that happen. And some piece of that is helpful. Rage, anger can be mobilizing and... It can also be debilitating. So I think that, again, being prepared for the fact that you may see sides of yourself you didn't know were in there. There are couples who actually have situational violence right around the time of, right before separating or around the time of separating. And I'm not talking about relationships that were marked by any kind of coercive or controlling violence. That's a very different situation. But people who never in their lives thought that was a part of them can even find themselves in that circumstance. And so what can be done about that? I think finding ways to slow down is really helpful. Finding ways to take breaks. Meditation is an amazing thing. I probably would all do well if we could do, change one thing in life and we put everybody on 10 minutes a day of meditation, it would be really helpful. And finding a time to really process, what is this about? Why did I get so triggered? Making sense of it rather than trying to you know, stuff it or stifle it or judge it. So if anybody is having questions about this or would like to talk to you further, how could they reach you? I'm at the Ackerman Institute for the Family, which is the oldest family therapy training institute in the country in the Flatiron District in Manhattan. And I'm at ecats at ackerman.org. Is there a phone number for the Ackerman Institute? Yes, 212-879-4900. Thank you. 
Well, I think that just to go back to the one thing about rage is that it really is a challenge to calm yourself in the feelings and when you're feeling really angry and upset and to get some help with that is probably an excellent idea. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alana. It's been really an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here.